One, two. Beautiful. Oh, I love that. Yeah, now I can hear myself and be nauseated. Um, <laughs> fabulous. <clears throat> As I was saying, I really love being here, and there's several reasons why. One of the biggest reasons is because it is so dry where we are that I don't get the kind of fellowship that you often enjoy here. And so to be with my brethren and to just enjoy a few days with them is a real privilege, and uh, to be amongst the school that is honoring God's truth and uh, where my foundation and heritage came from, it's like I get to take a little Bible bath, and I really, really love that. Um, I hope that you appreciate what you have. Being the intellectual that I am not, uh, when I get the paper, I usually pick it up, and the first place I go to is the comics. And uh, I confess that with great joy, because I enjoy them greatly. And uh, I was reading, and Hobbes said this, What are you doing? And Calvin said, I'm, I'm getting rich. And Hobbes said, Really? Calvin said, Yes, uh, I'm writing a self-help book. There's a huge market for this stuff. First, he says, what you do is you convince people there's something wrong with them. And that's easy to do because advertising has already conditioned people to feel insecure about their weight, their looks, their social status, sex appeal, and so on. Then he says, next you convince them that the problem is really not their fault, that they're only victims of larger forces. And that's easy because it's what people believe anyway. Nobody wants to be responsible for their own situation. Finally, you convince them that with your expert advice and encouragement, they can conquer their problem and be happy. Hobbes says, ingenious, Calvin, what, what problem will you help people solve? Calvin says, their addiction to self-help books. Calvin says, my book is called Shut Up and Stop Whining. <laughs> Subtitled, How to Do Something with Your Life Besides Think About Yourself. Hobbes says, you know, you probably ought to wait, Calvin, for the advance before you buy anything. Um, and Hobbes says, that, uh, Calvin says, the trouble is that if I, my program works, I won't be able to write a sequel. <laughs> kind of manipulative. The kind of thing that makes us think about our society, but also thinks about us. I'm reminded of the gal who wrote home to her parents in a very interesting way. She was at college, and she wrote this, Mom and Dad, dear Mom and Dad, I just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy named Jim, he quit high school after grade 11 to get married, and about a year ago, he got a divorce. We've been going steady for about two months and plan to get married in the fall. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment, parentheses, I think I might be pregnant. At any rate, I dropped out of school last week, although I'd like to finish college sometime in the future. Then the page was turned over, and she continued, Dear Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything that I've written so far in this letter is false. None of it is true. But mom and dad, it is true that I got a C in French and flunked math. And it is true that I'm going to need some more money for my tuition payments. <laughs> Pretty sharp. <laughs> Little manipulative, wouldn't you say? But communicatively effective. Makes you think about motives. Have you ever sung a song, a Christian song, maybe in the last set we sang three? without thinking about who you're singing to? Do you ever find yourself serving weekly and forgetting who you're doing it for? Is there ever a time where you forget what Jesus did for you on the cross? Have you drifted away from remembering what he made you to be and the cost that it cost him in order to accomplish that? Have you given with no thought of who you're giving to? The answer to those questions is, yes, you have, and so have I. 
And it's at those times where I believe we've forgotten some of the secrets that are really not secret, but they're those things that are the underlying motives of the Christian life. We've drifted from those true motives to wrong ones, external ones. Motives are crucial to our survival. The Bible tells us that the Christian life is a race, it's the work of a farmer, it's the war of a soldier, it's hard work, it's a long race, it's a tough battle. And in the midst of the plowing, we'd better know what we're farming for or we're going to give up. In the midst of the running, we better know what the finish line is and what we're running for or we're going to quit the race. And in the midst of the battle, we better know and remember who and what we're fighting for or we'll give up and surrender. If I don't know why I'm preaching, I'd give up the study. Really. If I don't remember why I serve in ministry, I would give it up for something else. If I didn't know that the battle, the suffering, or the persecution, or the slander were for some higher purpose, I personally would go play it safe in some other career. But because there is at the center of my life a high and holy and heart-changing motives, I keep going. I keep going. I can continue because of key motives. I can survive. Even when it's just another class and another chapel and another time to get together and another bookman rabbit trail, I can keep going. I can keep going. All of the key motives of the Christian life center around the person that every Christian in this room loves the most, Jesus Christ. It is his love that compels us. And so this morning, as we're preparing for lunch and we're beginning this conference together, I desire to let your heart be encouraged. I really want you to be refreshed in your innermost being. I want you to possibly, even for some of you, be forever changed as we look at these motives that drive the Christian life. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we here? Why are we living the way we live? Why do we serve? Why do we give? Why do we sing? Why do we sacrifice? Why do we work? Why do we pray? Why? What's behind it all? Why study? Why come to chapel? Why learn the Bible? Why take tests? Why prepare for the future? Hopefully it's not because you want to be seen or known or appreciated. Hopefully it's not because you want to be affirmed or esteemed or earn points with God or maybe fulfill your conference requirement. Hopefully it's not because you just have to do this in order to graduate and get out of here or to avoid being punished in some way. No, the motives that make a difference, the motives that will drive your life, the motives that will encourage you through the good times and the hard times and all times, those things that are the inner core of our being that free us from the weighty burdens, that allow us to live for and like and with Jesus Christ, are all focused around Christ himself. And I wish to give you this morning four of them. Four of them. They come from God's word. They're focused on the person of Christ They were born out of a day, and I take a day a month where I just go and pray. And out of that day, as God was wrestling with me and working me through what my motives were, some of these things came to clarity in my own heart. And so really what I'm doing is I'm teaching me. And if you can benefit from that, then I would appreciate that. I'm sure that you can discover better motives from God's Word. 
But these are the ones that the Lord has impressed upon my life and that I now share with you. They're not profound. They're not new. But I believe they're essential. And maybe for some of you, they need to be written down somewhere other than just notes. Maybe in a Bible. To think through again as to why you do what you do. What's driving you? Number one, here it is. To grow in ministry. To grow in ministry, remember God's mercies. To grow in ministry, remember God's mercies. And I want you to turn to a familiar verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, if you would. In order to become a Christ-like servant, in order to be the true minister of Jesus Christ, in order to be the, the greatest in the kingdom of God, then get motivated by Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This will be one of the motives. And it says this in Romans 12, verse 1. You know it so well. Don't let its familiarity, though, keep you from its truth. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Acceptable worship is to present our entire lives, our whole body, to Jesus Christ. Our body here symbolizing our entire life. So our words become His words. Our hands become His hands. Our feet become His feet. Our mouths and ears and eyes become His. That's our body is His. And in fact, the first result of presenting our bodies is found in verse 6, if you look there. The first result of presenting our bodies is since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. He says the motive for this kind of service, he's saying this motive is going to bring us to service, but the motive for this service, the drive behind true biblical servanthood in ministry, the way you grow in ministry is to be motivated by, verse 1 says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. The motivation for all true service for each of us is on the basis of what God has done for us, His mercies, His love. The problem with many of us is we don't have the right motivation and we're trying to live for God, but we're doing it for the wrong reason. And it's very easy to drift into those wrong reasons. So many Christians are trying to live for God in order to, to, to overcome guilt from some sin. To make themselves look good in their dorm room with their RA. They are trying to live for God because there's a pressure that way or they want to feel accepted or everybody else around them is serving and so they should too or their desire to be successful in the Christian life and to really be esteemed by men or women of God that they respect and, or they believe that somehow busyness is going to mean commitment and they get confused. But Paul says the right motivation is, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. You're committed to serve our Lord because of what He has done for you. That's the drive. That's the motive. You serve diligently because of His mercies that He's given to you in Jesus Christ. So what are those mercies of God that will do the motivating for you to present your body to God that will then result in a life of ministry? What are they? Well, Paul tells you when he says, I urge you... Therefore, brethren, and whenever you see therefore, you have to ask yourself, wherefore is that therefore, therefore? It always refers back to something. Well, what is it? You have to travel back through Romans chapter 1 through 11 to understand the mercies that do the motivating for us to live for God and to serve Him. You remember the flow of Romans. Romans 1 through 3 told us we're bankrupt. 
Len emphasized that in our first time together, that, that we have no ability to respond to God. We are hopeless. We are helpless. Romans 3 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. He must seek after us. And yet in light of this hopeless and helpless situation, our merciful God did what we could never do for ourselves. And in chapters 3 through 5, he tells us by trusting in Jesus alone, God would take our sin upon himself and he would give us his righteousness. Unbelievable. What an exchange. Your sin, his righteousness. Unbelievable. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. You can't MasterCard it. It's a gift. A gift. Romans 3, he says, But now, apart from works, anything that you could ever do, God has provided salvation to guilty men through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 6 through 8, he tells us God poured out his mercy upon us by changing our very natures. You know what? He gives you a heart that wants to obey. Unbelievable. Romans 6, 17. Look at it. You want to obey. Now you didn't. Now you do. He's delivered us from the power of sin. He's given us the indwelling spirit. He's given us heaven and the future and abundant life now. And then he says in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that using the example of Israel, Paul told us that nothing can stop our God from keeping his promises to us. He kept his promises to Israel. He will keep those promises. He will keep his promises to us. And then he says, by those mercies. Because God has been so good to you and so good to me. Give your total life to God. Present your body. Let your hands be his hands. Let your mouth be his mouth. Let your feet be his feet. Go where he tells you. Your motivation for giving, living, your motivation for serving, parenting, working, schooling, your motivation for wifing, fathering, sacrificing, evangelizing, discipling, worshiping, singing, loving, helping is all the mercies of God. It's all of what he's done, given to you in Jesus Christ. Are the mercies of God your motivation? When you compare yourself to others, it's not. When your focus is on performance, it's not. When you just go through the routine of attending and giving and doing what you have to without intimacy with Christ, without yieldedness to Christ, without dependency on Christ, it's not. You're not motivated by His mercy. When you're bitter, when you blame others, when you're not dependent, when your heart is never moved by gratitude, then you're not being motivated by the mercies of God. And the mercies of God can only be your motivation when you daily yield to Jesus Christ. Listen and walk. Walking dependently. Like my boys used to do with me when they were very young. They just put their hand up when we go for a walk. And that's what God calls our Christian life, a walk. You can walk independently or you can walk with your hand up dependently, moment by moment, relying on your Heavenly Father. See, your motivation is only right when you know who you are in Christ and when you sense your indebtedness to Him and when you live a life of gratitude. Here's the motivation. God's gifts were so great to you. How could you not dedicate your service back to Him? He gave His all for you. And so we return in service and in love. Number two, what other key motivation are there for Christians? Number two, to improve in attitude. To improve in attitude, remember your position in Christ. To improve in attitude, remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Do you have a problem with attitudes? <laughs> Morning people have an attitude problem. 
with night people, especially if they're roommates. Do you have a roommate who's the opposite of you? Can I see your hands? Oh, come on. Two people, I'm sure. Some people get up and say, Good morning, Lord! And other people get up and say, Good Lord, it's morning! You know, I... They struggle with each other. As you go through life, you are going to have attitude struggle. I find it amusing that God often causes husbands and wives to be opposite in that arena. Would you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1? When we embrace our true position in Christ, we will look at life with different attitudes. What is our position in Christ? Well, look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let it keep growing. In the personal, experiential knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine dynamite power has granted to us and given it to us as a precious gift that can never be taken away, granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. Peter says, our position in Christ, we have everything. Everything. Everything we need to live a life that rightly honors God, a life that will please God in every situation. And when Peter says everything, he's telling every true Christian here that you're just like a baby. Because a baby, when it's born, has all the equipment that it needs. It doesn't need anything else. All the genetic structure is there. Just feed it, deal with the consequences, and clean it up and you're fine. You don't have to do anything else. It has everything it needs to grow. Same thing with you as a Christian. You have everything you need. Our position is so complete, we don't need anything except what God has given us and everything that's required is supplied. That's why Colossians 2, 9 and 10, just let me read it to you. It affirms, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you, Christian, have been made complete, and He is head over all rule and authority. Christians are complete. Unlike modern car manufacturers, there will be no callbacks for Christians. There's no defective models. You have everything you need. But some of you are struggling with that, so let's take a little reminder to basic truth and turn over, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'll skim over the surface of this while Scott Artavanis will plumb us to the depths later on. Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to revel. Revel in what God has done for every true Christian here. His love. Let me refresh your memory by looking at this spiritual grocery list and you then taking note of your position in Christ. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And now Paul goes on to explain what that means. And I, maybe, maybe you can circle these words in your Bible or somewhere else, but in verse 4, circle or underline the word chose us. God chose you before he made the world. He chose you. Understand that God is complete. He is totally self-sufficient. He has no necessities. He has no needs. God did not need you or me. He didn't. He chose you because he wanted to. 
Remember how it was when you were in school, in elementary school, in junior high school, in high school, and maybe just once, when you lined all up, somebody picked you first. That's what God did. He chose you out of humanity because he wanted you. Not because you were a better player, just because he wanted to be with you and to give you to his son. He chose you. He chose you. Look at verse 5. Circle the word adoption. God not only has adopted you to be his intimate child in order to have a relationship that's so close you can cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father, but also he's adopted you in such a way that you receive full inheritance, full status, as if you were God's own son. I mean, you are considered by God to have the same standing in him as Jesus Christ. Now, that's a profound thought. Don't let that roll over as an intellectual understanding. Let that overwhelm you. You have the status of Christ. I mean, if you've been rejected by your own family, and I know some of you have, God still wants you in his family. And he's given you status in his family. Look at verse 6. Circle the word bestowed in the King James Version that it's accepted, NIV, freely given. It literally means you've been graced, accepted, embraced. You've been looking for acceptance lately? I mean, if you've tried to gain it from your friends or your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend or your ministry or your family, you're looking in the wrong place. Stop looking for acceptance there and realize that true acceptance is fully yours in Jesus Christ. Fully yours. You are unconditionally loved by the God of the universe. Unconditionally. I think that means that you ought to start the day uniquely. I think it's wrong that sometimes we start our day without thoughts of God. And so uh, on the basis of some early exhortation in my Christian life, we've kind of developed a little bit of habit in the Mueller household. And that is we have three steps. Number one, we wake up. Whatever it takes. Water on the face, you know, jumping around, exercising. Whatever it takes. If it takes a cup of drugs, you know, coffee, then that's fine. Whatever. Wake up. Number two, smile. Smile. Even if it cracks your face, smile. And number three, then remember and reflect on the fact, and Dave said at the very beginning of our time, Jesus loves me. You can't start the day without the knowledge that God loves you. Look at verse 7. Circle the word redemption. God hated sin so much that he actually killed his own son in order to take care of the problem, but he loved you so much he allowed his own son to die in order to facilitate a way to buy you back into his family. You were a slave to sin. You were part of the devil's family, and God bought you back with the price of his son. Unbelievable. Look at verse 7. Circle the word forgiveness. All your guilt, all your sin, past, present, and future is taken care of in Jesus Christ. All of it. Three greatest words that are ever spoken in the entire history of mankind were spoken by Jesus Christ on the cross, and he said, It is what? Finished. And you know what those words mean in the Greek? They mean, It is finished. Profound, isn't it? It's finished. It's done. God is satisfied. Your sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west. That means forever. You know that past sin you've been hiding? That deep, dark closet sin that nobody knows about? The one that's hid because you're so, so ashamed of what you did? It's taken care of in Christ. 
You don't need to keep that baggage any longer. It's taken care of in Christ. Recognize the fact that Jesus does not need to go back to the cross to deal with your past. It's done. Look at verse 11. Circle the word inheritance. As God's children, you'll receive an inheritance. You know, personally, I've got to be real honest with you. I feel like the prodigal son. My attitude when I came to Christ was, just let me in. Just let me be your slave. I would have been happy with that. I was pretty desperate. And you know what? He's not happy with that. He's like the prodigal father. He wants to lavish gifts on us and blessings. It's incredible. An inheritance. Look at verse 13. Sort of the word sealed, like wax sealing a document in the first century. Christians are sealed with the Holy Spirit, securing and authenticating our salvation. Verse 14, the phrase, given a pledge, given the Holy Spirit. We've been given a down payment, a security that just like an engagement ring is a guarantee that there'll be a future wedding, the Holy Spirit is your guarantee that you will be married to your groom. Won't that be a glorious day? Free. And now with all this high and full and complete and privileged position, why don't we have better attitudes? We ought to be giddy. We ought to be joyful and blessed and content. And I think the problem is we forget. Don't we? We forget who we are in Christ. We forget what God gave us when he gave us his son. We forget his love. The turn of the century, a young Irishman was trying to make his way to America. He found that he was not going to be able to go anywhere. In, in Ireland, he wasn't going to be able to buy a farm. He wasn't going to be able to do anything to advance himself. It was a very, very poor family. So what he did for three years, he killed himself working night and day, any time he could to earn a little extra money and put that away. For three years, he tried to earn enough money to buy a ticket to come to America. He finally had that, nearly exhausted, purchased his ticket and had very little money left over. And he thought, this is a 15-day cruise. I'm going to need some food. So he went out and all he could afford, figuring he'd make it last, were some cheese and some crackers. And he purchased those, got on board the boat, and had a plan to make it last. And so he doled it out and made it last, made it endure. But as he slept on the deck at night, he got colder and colder. And as he watched three times a day, incredible trayfuls of food come by, food that he had never seen before in his life, banquets, every meal. It began to eat away at him, and he began to eat more. And all of a sudden, after three days, his cheese and crackers were gone. He lasted until five days, and then he finally said, I'm, I'm in serious trouble. I'm going to get very ill. I'm not going to make it, and my dream is going to die. And so he finally went up to a steward and said, Look, I, I've been sleeping out on the deck here. I'm out of food, and I just want you to know I'm a, I'm a hard-working man, and I'll do anything, anything, in order to be able to have a meal and a place to sleep inside. And the steward looked at him so funny, and he said, Sir, are you a stowaway? And he said, No. And he said, Don't you realize, as he looked at his ticket, that this ticket enables you to your own room and three meals a day? as as much as you want to eat? And I thought, what a fitting illustration of so many of us who are content with cheese and crackers when God has laid out a banquet for us. To revel in and to enjoy. 
his acceptance, his love, his grace that Lynn so wonderfully reminded us of and all that he's done through his son. That's the motivation of the Christian life. We need to remember the banquet that God has given us through his son. And when we do, we will have different attitudes. We'll not be envious of the wicked who are rich because we are richer. We'll we'll not be frustrated by people who seem to have it easy in this life when we are by our personal trainer being, being trained in righteousness because we know how much we have and who we belong to. But it's when we forget that we lose our motivation that then loses everything that really is supposed to drive the Christian life. Our position in Christ is a motive that will change our attitudes. It will change the way we look at the world and our relationships around us, remembering who we are in Christ. Let me ask you, if you would, to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, a couple chapters later, and I want to continue. If you can continue and you want to continue to become the kind of Christian that God wants you to become, then number three, to continue to mature, remember Christ's character. What is a great motivation? If you want to mature in Christ, remember his character. Notice if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, notice where maturity is sandwiched. He says in chapter 4, verse 13, he talks about the knowledge of the Son of God. The knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Maturity is found in personal knowledge of Christ. Maturity are those who are intimate and deep in Christ. Maturity comes when we are face to face with our Lord. Would you look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18? Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. That's between Genesis and Revelation in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. You know this verse, and this is all familiar, but let this motivate you. He says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You know, as we look beyond the printed page into the face of Jesus Christ, we will mature. We'll become like Him. And therein lies the true motivation for maturity. When you genuinely commune with Jesus Christ, when you see His beauty through the printed page of the Holy Word of God, when you see His character... When you see how he related and how he dealt and how he interrelated with others around him, and when you see the incredible, awesome character of God through the person of Jesus Christ, you will become like him. Wasn't that the cry of Paul's heart in Philippians 3.8? I count all things to be lost in the view of surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Nothing was more important to Paul than personal, intimate, relational knowledge of Christ. You say, how do I get it? Time with Him. How do I get it? Time with Christ. Alone in the Word, with other believers in worship, in prayer, in study, in meditation. I would highly recommend silence. And let God begin to move in your heart through His Word as you come face to face and communing with the risen Savior. That's how you get it. You know, when you're around somebody 
for a long period of time, you become like them, don't you? You know, when I'm around people who speak with an accent, I notice that I speak with an accent. Uh, we had Alex Montoya up at our family camp, and by the end of the week, I was going, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. You know, I couldn't help it. I mean, I'm sure after this week, I'll be rolling my arms with our, uh, you know, Alistair. Righteousness. You know, I mean, just, you can't help it. <laughs> you can't help it. When you're around somebody who uses certain phrases and certain words, you start using them. When you're around other Christians who really trust the Lord and walk with the Lord, you begin to be motivated to do that yourself. And when you're in the presence of Jesus Christ, you will want to be like Him. You'll be driven to be like Him. You will adore Him and you'll want to say, this, this is who I want to please. The motivation to mature comes as we do, as Hebrews 12:2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And when we fix our eyes on His character and His person and His love and His unbelievable attributes that are so awesome, how could I not want to be like Him and allow His Spirit to mold me to be like Him? And number four, how do I know what decisions to make in this life and how can I have the proper motivation? Number four, to make the right choices, to make the right decisions, remember His example. Remember His example. The example of Jesus is so wise, how could I not do what he did? Uh, we sometimes, you know, look at his words and we say, his words were perfect. They are perfect. But everything he did was perfect. And that's why over and over in the scripture, the Bible is full of commands for us to live as Jesus lived. Let me just read some to you. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. 1 John 4.11 Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives. Why? Just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Romans 15.7 Accept one another just as Christ also accepted us for the glory of God. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to each other. Why? Be tender-hearted. Why? Forgiving each other. Why? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 2.6, as you've received the Lord, walk in Him. You know, when I took a bunch of junior hires backpacking with their dads several years back at Grace Community Church, there was often on the trail where I didn't know what to do. And I thought back, what would my dad have done? The ultimate backpacker. What would he have done? When I was at Grace Community Church in my first couple years there, um, they did this thing called P.O.D. That, that's satanic. I don't know. It's this P.O.D. You're the pastor of the day. All outside phone calls come to you. And it's unbelievable what came to you. And, you know, I was seven years old in the Lord and I'm answering these questions that are far beyond me. Often, I would sit in my office and I would say, what would Fred say? What would Fred say? Because Fred was a mentor and a counselor to me. There were often times, and even now, and I say this sincerely because I taught this message to our church, so I'll say it just the way I said it to them. There are times when I don't know what to do with leadership. I don't know how to help them as a fellow leader. Or I'm struggling with a doctrinal issue. I don't know quite how to do it. And I'll think back, what would John have done? Because he mentored me in how to respond. And in the same way, 
we ought to be looking back. What would Jesus do? What would he say? The marvelous thing about knowing more and more about the word is that when you begin to say the word, you're actually saying what Jesus would say because it's his words. And that's what's fabulous about being a part of this environment where you can be motivated to do what he did and say what he said. And that's our motivation. So the point is that if you really are around him enough and you love him, you'll want to be like him and you'll want to do what he wants you to do. And that's the secrets of Christ-like living, the motives of serving because of what he did for us, of trusting because of our position, of maturing because of being in Christ and imitating because of the person of Christ. You're saying, how does it happen? Let me conclude with these thoughts. First, Lynn already alluded to this, be trained. Build the disciplines necessary in your life. You know, if you're going to be a great baseball player, you're going to have to swing the bat a thousand times a day. If you're going to be a great golfer, you're going to have to swing the club thousand times a day. That's what they do. If you're going to be a great Christian, you're going to have to build some disciplines in your life. Some things that maybe are mechanical, they have to be done from a heart of love, a heart of gratitude, but they still have to be done. You've got to build these disciplines in your life. Time with God, mentors, a community together, relating and praying together Regular reminders of Christ-like motives and like gathering together in times like this. But build those disciplines in your life. Secondly, take your focus off the externals and put them on a tender, yielded, dependent heart of, for Christ. A dependent heart to Christ. Moment by moment. Don't let anything stand in your way. Don't let your past stand in your way. People walk with the Lord longer and longer. You know, they start tripping back to their past and say, well, that's when God really worked in my life at that camp or through this thing. Don't do that. Let those be cherished memories. But don't let anything stand in the way of God working in your life now. You know, at college, especially at an incredible place like this, if you can't live everything you hear, make sure you live one thing each day, dependently. Don't let the fact that you're fed well keep you from living the truth and living a piece of what you're learning every day. Put yourself in a tested environment where you have to depend upon the Lord. Stretch yourself. Go beyond by the grace of God and say, God, use me in this situation. As Revelation tells us about rekindling your first love, do the things you did at first. I survived Christian college and looking back, Several times every week, going across the street to a park that was right across the street from that rival college, Biola. And I just got away with a Bible. I was, I was only a year old in the Lord. And so as I read the Bible, it was all new to me. But it was the time for God to keep my relationship with Him fresh as I prayed and interacted with the Scripture. Don't lose your relationship in the midst of the bounty around you. Keep that fresh. And number three, admit. Admit that you cannot live the Christian life. You can't do it. You can't maintain the proper motives. And you've got to admit that. Listen, don't try and live like Jesus. You're saying, what? What is this nut? No, don't try and live like Jesus. Only God can glorify God. Only Jesus Christ can live like Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus must live through you, through his Spirit.
as we yield to him and we allow him to work through us, he will manifest his character. Now, that's not easy. Christian life is not like a bucket where you dip it out and you share a little bit of Jesus with everybody. It's a hose. And it's a hose that the internal part's got to be carved out. You must die so he can live. But as you share him with others and allow him to live through you, you get to enjoy the bounty of that hose. Those are the motivations that will allow you to not only enjoy the love of God, but as one of the students last night stopped me and said, you've got to look at Psalm 1611. And I love that, so I looked it up. He said, in thy presence is joyful abundance. And that's what he's given us through his grace, through his love, through his son. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, I would pray that as we come face to face with you during the next few days, that we would remember what has brought us here we would remember what you did for us that we could never do for ourselves and that we would recall those things that really do motivate us. Not the externals and not the things that are outside of us, but everything that you have done for us. And we would pray that we would recognize your mercy, your grace, your love, and that our hearts would be broken and tender before you so that we might enjoy your presence in the fullness of joy. And Father, live for you because of all that you've done. For no other reason, but we are debtors. We seek to be those who would be faithful until you come. But along the way, Lord, allow us to enjoy you and to live in you and to grow in you. And we'll give you all the glory and all the praise in advance. In Jesus' name.